0: Spire. From Spire, this is Starting Now, a show about change, resilience, and your next big idea. I'm Jeff Saris. Today's guest is entrepreneur and investor Jeff Wilson. By day, Jeff runs the Growth and Innovation Agency 352. And by night, he's the sports card investor. Sports cards have seen a boom as of late. And through his YouTube channel and website, Jeff provides the tools and education to help you invest in sports cards. Yes, sports cards can be a worthy investment. So whether you're starting an agency or curious about the world of sports card investing, I think you're going to love this episode. So without further ado, let's get started. So hey there, Jeff. Thanks for being on the show today. Happy to be here. Nice to, nice to meet you, Jeff. So I first found you through your YouTube channel, Sports Card Investor. And that's a very fascinating world, investing in sports cards. I'm, it's near and dear to my heart because I grew up collecting sports cards. So I'm really excited to dive into that. But first, I actually want to talk about your main company, your agency, and sort of where you started and what led you to becoming the sports card investor.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so Sports Card Investor is something that I started um, about a year ago. Uh, It's I I couldn't I can't call that my main company. I would say my agency life is still my, you know, my main day to day focus. And we'll talk about both. Um, But Sports Card Investor started really just as kind of a side passion project. And I used to be a big sports card collector when I was a kid, mainly baseball cards. And I got back into it a few years ago when my son got to the age, age I think it was seven back then, when he started um, wanting to buy football cards, and I so it kind of sucked me back in, and I started to look at sports cards today versus when, what they were when I was a kid, and I started to realize that the product is so much better produced, it's it's so superior in so many ways. And as I started to look into it, I said, wow, this has got investment potential written all over it. And I think this is going to become huge. I think sports cards are going to become absolutely a huge part of American culture again, just like they were back in the 1980s um, and early 1990s. And I said, I think that folks who get in now can get in on the beginning of that wave and could actually probably make a lot of money in the process by buying up Uh, You know, uh, sports cards and and of certain types and certain grades and certain qualities and holding on to those while the surge uh, starts to happen over the next few years. And um, and but and this is this goes back to early last year, but there was no one really talking about it. There were some podcasts about sports cards, but they were not really talking about the dollars and cents behind sports cards very much um, there, there were more kind of hobby type shows. So there was to- a total lack of information. And so I decided, you know what, I am going to create the content that I would like to consume myself since no one else out there is doing it. And that's when I launched sports card investor as a YouTube show. And then also as a website, uh, last July. So we're coming up on just, just almost coming up on a year and during that time we went from absolutely no viewers, no subscribers, nothing to now having between my YouTube and podcast we're getting close to 40,000 subscribers, my website's getting 100,000 visits a month. Um, my, you know, my Facebook group and my Discord chat have thousands and thousands and thousands of members in them. So it's it's it has absolutely exploded in popularity and honestly on this one my timing was just good. <laughs> I just I, I got in early. I predicted the boom that was about to occur. It occurred, and and I've I've been able to ride the wave. And and I I still think we're in the relatively early stages. Um. So I still think the wave is going to continue to be pretty significant for the next few years.
0: Yeah, I find that all very fascinating. Before we dive too far into sports card investor, tell me a little more about your agency, three five two. So that's
1: that's my as you mentioned. I've been I've been doing uh, that for uh, 23 years I I founded it and uh, when I was back in college originally. And yeah, uh, web web development, web design was kind of our calling card through a lot of the growth. Um, Obviously that got into more complicated software development apps, all that type of thing. We added a digital marketing practice um, about 10 years ago. And then most recently, added an early stage innovation practice that's kind of built around new venturing and helping companies find uh, growth within their existing business models. Um, and, um, and, and oftentimes, all of those services come together where we'll, you know, we'll work with a company to kind of help them find, build and grow what's next. Um, and, and, you know, use a mix of talent from across the agency. So yeah, we're 65 employees. Um, We have three offices. uh, Atlanta, Georgia is where we're headquartered. That's where I'm based. Uh, But then we also have two offices in Florida, Tampa, Florida, and Gainesville, Florida as well.
0: Yeah. So this show is about getting started. And I know it's been been many years. You said 23 years since you started um, the agency. But thinking back to the very beginning, how did you initially find those first clients?
1: Well, I, I'm a big believer in businesses that start with a niche target audience that is easily accessible, that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is, that gathers in a particular area. That is a kind of a startup 101 you know, foundational lesson that I when I talk to new entrepreneurs, I always talk about. And I've started 13 different companies over the course of time, and most of them have had that type of target. Some of them have not, and, and actually some of them that haven't have failed. Uh, but most of them have had a target where you could get to those people quickly. Uh, now, in the world of a- in, in the agency world, there's a few different ways that you could niche yourself. I've seen agencies niche themselves by the type of client who they are uh, willing to take on. They'll sometimes go for an industry niche. So I, there are agencies now that specialize in we build websites for lawyers, or we you know have a you know unique content management and scheduling system that's perfect for plumbers or home repairmen or, you know, whatnot. So that's one way you could go. Another way you can go is by service offering. And, and that's, that's getting more specific than ever before. But you could, you know, you could become the premier agency that offers this particular line of service. Like we are, you know, we are the best in the world when it comes to um, paid Facebook ads or something of that nature, right? And so that's another way you can go. Um, And then, of course, another way you can go is geographically. Now, that may or may not work depending on um, how big your city is. That may not really be a niche. In Atlanta, that's not really a niche because there's hundreds of agencies. But in Gainesville, Florida, where I started the company back in 1997, that by itself was a niche. So we back then said our target client is small businesses in Florida with a concentration in the Gainesville area, or you know, within a radius of that, because that's where we're based, and that by itself was enough of a niche back then, because there weren't, um, there, there really weren't many web design companies, there really weren't many other agencies that were playing in the digital space. Um, so we were able to, um, we were able to operate that way, and um, uh, it helped us get started. It helped us find our first customers. I mean, back then we were very scrappy we went to local you know chamber of commerce shows we you know we we offered really inexpensive prices um, and you know we were putting people online with their first web page because back then it was a web page not a whole website um, and you know we were at first we were like 79 bucks to you know for you to get your first web page on the internet and uh, you know the prices worked up from there over time but they but but for the first few years they stayed pretty low um, in the hundreds of dollars for most of the work that we did But it was pretty simple work and it allowed us to build up a customer base quickly. And we actually found that we started making pretty good, pretty good money by charging for web hosting and charging for maintenance services. And oftentimes uh, in the early stages, oftentimes that would become a kind of a profitable play for us. So that's 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 how we chose to kind of niche ourselves uh, in the early stage.
0: Yeah, recurring revenue in any form is phenomenal. As a service-based business, we tend to start as dollar for hour, but as you add in the maintenance, the retainers, the hosting, that really makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. I would, I would. I mean, recurring revenue businesses are, you know, the darling of Silicon Valley right now for a good reason, and and I highly recommend them. Some of the biggest. The biggest, um, some of the biggest success stories I've had have been that. And, and at three five two, we over the years have attempted to move more and more of our money to recurring revenue type contracts with clients um, for that exact reason. So that we, you know, because it gives you, again, you know, you're every go, you know, it's so if you're entirely project based or you're or you're just selling a thing, then every month you go into that month with zero dollars in sales because you mm. you you have to restart every month if you're just selling a one-off thing but if you if you're recurring revenue then every single month you go into each month with a, a certain amount of sales because those are all the things that were recurring from the month prior and so it just it's a much more stable base to be able to build a business off of
0: absolutely so you mentioned niching down you started as a web design company and now you're a much larger agency over the years how did you find the niche that you or currently, find yourself in, and how did you adapt and decide what direction you should take your agency?
1: Um, I think any company, regardless of whether you're an agency or not, you have to you have to obviously evolve and grow, and you have to what your niche is today and where your strong place is today may not you may lose that, and you probably won't own it in another five years or ten years. Especially in the agency world, things change quickly. And you have to be willing to adapt. And I'm constantly telling my staff that we need to think of ourselves as a 20 year old startup um, for that reason. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So over the years, it changed. I mean, we when um, when agile software development became popular as a methodology, we converted our entire agency to agile
0: and we were. And for anyone who isn't familiar, what is agile?
1: Yeah. So agile is a it's a method of working where you essentially work for a set block of time and uh, you you aim to, you break that time up into smaller increments. So just for a real world example, if someone comes to you and wants to build a piece of software, you may say, okay, we're gonna work on this software for 16 weeks. I'm gonna put a fully dedicated team on this. So a full-time team on this for the next 16 weeks. And then that team, we're gonna create a whole big list of of things we would like to accomplish that team is going to take whatever the highest priority things are they're going to organize their work in two week cycles for example and at the end of the two weeks their goal is to get this first these first few things on the list 100% complete and deliver to you then we're going to reassess where we're at and we're going to choose the things that team's going to do the next two weeks and then we're going to choose the things to, the team's going to do the next two weeks after that so it's a very uh, it's an adaptive iterative way of working, it's much different than the traditional model of a waterfall, which is where at the beginning of the project, you would plan the entire project out from start to finish, you would create Gantt charts, you would, I mean, you would essentially try to have everything fully baked, and then you would go into the project with a very long project plan, and you would work for a long period of time and then really not have anything fully working or done or complete, maybe until the end, because it's all kind of coming together at the end of the last minute. So it's, it's just a different philosophy about how to approach software development, how to approach web development. Um, and, and it's now bled into other areas like there's agile marketing, where you, again, you kind of plan your marketing calendar in one month cycles, as opposed to trying to plan a year you know, marketing calendar, that type of thing. Uh, I'm a big believer in it. So we converted our whole agency over to that method of working in 2011, 2012. We were one of the first agencies in the country to move to agile, and as a result of that, you know that kind of became a niche for us uh, for a few years, um, and and customers found it invigorating. Customers appreciated it. Now it's much more common. Um, you know, a lot of agile as a practice is much more common. There are more agencies out there that practice agile, um, and um, so it's no longer it's no longer as much of a differentiator for us. So we've continued to evolve, and most recently, our evolution has been getting into the Uh, innovation space. Um, And we've been working with companies on the early stage. We've been helping companies um, validate business ideas, uh, create business ideas uh, for new ventures or for revenue growth, validate them, um, you know, come up with growth strategies, that type of thing, which which is, uh, you know, helps us stand out as well now from what a lot of other agencies are doing.
0: Yeah. So as you are growing, as you are finding these new clients for innovation, how were you how are you seeking them? How are you finding them to level up your client base?
1: Sure. So so these days, because of the types of services that we're offering, that that's by the way, this is adapted quite a bit over time as well. In the early stages, we did a lot of digital marketing we did a lot of we were very reliant on search engine optimization of our own website to bring in leads and we were bringing in a very high volume of leads every month because we were we had gotten very good at our own seo at our own digital marketing um and we were bringing in you know over 100 leads a month through our own website and converting several of those a month into sales but that's when we were doing smaller dollar projects simpler projects more basic website builds Um, Now that we're doing the type of work that we're doing, it's much more relationship-based selling. So, um, you know, our strategy has been to set up an event series and to use events as a mechanism for building relationships with corporate directors and executives who could be good consumers of our services. So we... We have uh, a whole event strategy where every month we do a um, kind of a a larger public event, always around corporate innovation. We bring in a speaker that's typically from uh, one of Atlanta's large companies to speak about innovation within their company. So we've had, you know, Delta Airlines, um, you know, we've had um, SunTrust Bank, we've had Nationwide Insurance, uh, we've had Coca-Cola, We've had Home Depot, you know, all of these big companies that are in Atlanta, we will have either their heads of innovation or you know various people within their organization that are working on innovation projects come in and kind of talk about it. And we use that as an opportunity to network and to meet people. Uh, and then we will then do, throughout the course of the month, we will do uh, smaller events. We'll do huddles, uh, which are kind of um, uh, private brainstorms where it's an invite only. We'll get a group of maybe 12 of these uh, corporate leaders together and spend two hours together, uh, brainstorming around a different topic or sharing experiences around a different topic, et cetera. So it's, it's through, through those types of events, we, we position ourselves as a, um, you know kind of a very central uh, connector within the community. Um, and that helps establish the relationships that then some of which turn into, you know, actual work opportunities for our agency
0: yeah being the connector of everyone else is brilliant and obviously it's it's been paying off so that's a big upfront investment to to be creating these uh these events these in-person events so how long would you say it was until you started to before it started to pay off when you started to get your first clients through the events
1: a very long time (laughs) it's uh... (laughs) Uh, So to give you the to give you the actual stats from the day we did our first event, like I just described, to the day we actually got a sale from the event strategy, it was 17 months, 17 Mm -hmm. months. And it, it you know, it since then, once we got our first sale, we then got sale two, three and four fairly soon thereafter. Um, but it took 17 months to go from doing the first event to actually getting a sale from the events. Um, that's not uncommon. Um, that's maybe a little longer than I would you know than I would have liked to have seen, but I mean, expecting a year is pretty common. You know, if you're if you're gonna go out and try to build relationships with people for the first time, whether you're doing your own events or whether you're going out and doing, Networking, getting involved in different organizations and clubs, and and that's going to be your sales strategy. It's it's a year investment till that strategy probably pays off, or in the in the case of us, it was a seventeen month investment. Um, and so that's something to consider. I I think it's the right strategy. It's, certainly it's the right strategy for us long term. But you also have to have sometimes you have to balance that with you know ways to get leads in your pipeline in the in the near term as well, and that may be through Digital advertising that may be you know through through uh, maybe more targeted direct outreach that's more sales oriented outreach um, but the general you know the general relationship building definitely does take a lot of time
0: yeah, it definitely does and about how much would you say that that cost those seventeen months how much of an investment was that on your part?
1: I mean it was definitely more of a cost in man hours we were you can do a lot for a little when it comes to events and that type of thing. We, we, um, in fact, when we first started doing it, our own office, our office at that point was was we didn't have a lot of open space in it. And so we found a kind of a tech incubator slash co-working space near us. And we said, hey, we want to put this event together. Could we host it at your space? And then it would be good promotion for you as well. And we'd let you say something about your your space and so they agreed to give us their space for free in exchange for the publicity of bringing together a group of folks who could be good you know people to have in their network potential clients whatever that looks like um so we did that there for some time um and so really you know you know we would obviously we used eventbrite uh you know to for people to rsvp for the event We 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 didn't do any paid promotion of it what we did do was we um, in addition to inviting people who were already in our network, we would do a lot of reach out via LinkedIn um, where we would you know, find people with job titles on LinkedIn who we thought would be really good candidates to come to it. And we'd reach out with a personalized message. And that was pretty effective. Um, and we would do a lot of that. So there wasn't much money involved. It was a lot of time and a lot of commitment of manpower. And again, since it's something you have to do for many, many months, it's a long term commitment of manpower. It's a big decision to do something like this, because if you just try it for three months and give up on it, then don't try it at all because you're you're not you know, you're likely not going to be successful unless you're willing to go all in and accept that this is a year long thing or more. And so, you know, you got to really have that uh, desire to invest the manpower over that long a period of time and you gotta be comfortable with that decision from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice for anyone at any stage in their journey because really it always takes a long time. We we get impatient. We want to make that first dollar, we want to get rolling, but it it takes a lot longer than we would hope. So when you started, when you started your agency, what what's your wheelhouse? Were you a designer, developer, sales and marketing sort of Sort of where did you fit in best into that, into the very beginning stages of your company?
1: It, I mean, honestly, I, so I did, the, I did the original websites myself, both the design and the coding of them. However, I would absolutely not consider myself particularly talented in either area. And so uh, I was more talented at sales and marketing, which was a great thing for the growth of our agency. Because as soon as as soon as we had enough work, where I could hire a designer, I did, and then I could hire a developer, I did, and then eventually I hired a project manager, and then it allowed me to work full time on you know the sales and the marketing of the business, um, which you know which honestly I was, it was a good thing that I was bad at those other things because you know a lot of a lot of agencies who I I, I you know I do. Mentor and talk to a lot of agency owners, uh, and I, um, I, a number of them, want to talk. You know, want to talk to me about. Oh, we're you know we're four people. How do we grow? We're six people. How do we grow? And a lot of times, the the owner who I'm talking to, the founder, their passion is in design, or their passion is in development, and they don't want to get out of it. And they you know they they love they started the agency because they love being a creative director. They love being an artist. They love, you know, whatever it is. And I say to them, I'm like, you really want to grow? Because if you're going to grow, you're no longer going to be doing that. In fact, you're going to become very detached from the work because you need to concentrate on the business and get out of the day to day and you need to drive sales and you need to drive your own marketing and you need to make sure your operations are sound and you can't get involved. On the on the client level or the project level, at least not very much. I mean, obviously you can you know you can you can maintain a relationship with some of your bigger clients and that type of thing, but you cannot get involved in the day to day details of you know all of the projects going on and get your hands dirty in the work if you're really going to try to grow. And so um, it depends what it depends what the passion is. Of the founder, and for me, it was growth and entrepreneurship, and and sales and marketing were my passion, so that I pursued that, and that allowed us to grow. But if if it, if it had been design or development, you know, maybe we wouldn't have.
0: Yeah, and that's how our two paths really diverge. Where you built an agency focused on growth, we we're more operators. We've focused more on staying extremely lean, and I, I don't really feel like I would want to. I would fit in, in that role as someone who has to manage employees. I like to, I like to be in the, in the weeds, you know, and like, uh, working with the client projects as much as I can.
1: And it, yeah. And, and, you know, there's a misconception that people have. And it was a misconception that I had in the early days that, um, growth, growth equals success, you know, growth equals winning, the better you get, the the, the larger you get, the more successful you are that, and that's not always the case. I mean, yeah, there are some nice advantages to growth. If you obviously, if you're, if you grow a lot and you're profitable throughout, then, then, then it can lead to more money, but it also could lead to more headaches. Um, and, um, you know, growth is nice because it also can provide more opportunity. If you, you know, if you get larger, there's more opportunities there for your team members and all that kind of thing. But as you said, there's also downside and, and there's other ways to grow by the way. And I'm sure this is something that you focus on. You can grow, you can stay a couple person company and stay committed to that, but you can grow by working, by doing larger and larger work for larger and larger clients at higher bill rates and higher profit margins. And you can see your you know you can see your your revenue and your profitability increase every year even though your headcount remains fixed and in some ways that that's a superior form of growth right i mean why why go from 2 employees to 20 employees and not make that much more money but but have a thousand times more headaches than if you can you know raise your profile at a at a smaller level and uh, really focus on profitability and, 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 and be able to enjoy more of the fruits of your labor.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point because we can all like, we can succeed doing different things and approaching this world in the way that fits us best. Um, so let's move forward to sports card investor. This is your side project, like your baby. You've, you've built this from, from the ground floor very recently. You, you're the face of sports card investor. How was that transition from being behind the scenes at your agency to being in front of the camera and building all of the content around sports cards?
1: Well, first of all, well, first of all, it's been exhilarating. (laughs) It's been fun. Um, I was a so my mindset going into sports card investor, I saw that there was a lot of business potential when it came to sports cards. Being an entrepreneur, I immediately had ideas of businesses that I could launch into the sports card space. One of which was the fact that there needed to be a much better data tool, online, you know, online software as a service price guide, market data research tool to help you understand the market. And so I saw an immediate need to build that right away. And I had a choice. And my choice was I could start by building software and building a data tool, but then I would have to figure out how to market it and who to market, it, you know, how, how, to, how to get the usage in the marketing. Or I could start by building audience. And then if I was successful at building audience, then I would have built in marketing for whatever I wanted to do within the space or even outside of the space maybe. And I, thought that there was a need for the type of content, as I mentioned earlier, that I wanted to consume. And I I had a feeling that if I started producing high quality content around looking at the dollars and cents behind sports cards and looking at sports cards from an investment standpoint, that there would be other people out there who would want to consume that content. That was a bet that I kind of that I, I made and that I was willing to place. So I decided to start there. And so I decided to start with a YouTube show and to do, I, I started doing a show once a week about sports card investing, and I just talked about what's happening in the sports card market. And I looked at the values of certain cards and and charted them all manually in Excel. Took hours, but it gave me good, you know, good things to show on the screen during my show. I did all of it myself. I did the, you know, filming myself. I was filming on an iPad. I did the editing myself and iMovie. Um, I, you know. I was a broadcast journalism major in college so I had some on camera experience and so I felt like I felt like I knew how to present things well as a result of that I knew how to speak you know confidently on camera and I I knew enough to get good lighting and a good microphone and but you can figure a lot of that stuff out just by googling it and it's it's by the way it's not expensive like you don't have to spend much money to get good lighting and a good microphone and and uh, a good webcam, uh, you got to put a little investment in. But more so, you just got to be, you know, you just got to you just got to be disciplined about it. And you got to you've got to have a nice setup. You got to um, create good content. And then and then and then just like just like the lesson that I said about business development, it's about repetition and persistence and time because the first time you put an episode on YouTube, nobody's going to watch it. And the second time you put an episode on YouTube, nobody's going to watch it. And you hope that somewhere along the way you get a break that all of a sudden catapults your viewership for some reason, you know, and and for me, that happened early on um only about 3 episodes in went three or four episodes in, I went to the National Sports Collectors Convention in Chicago last, at the end of July. And I'd only started my show July 22nd. So I, I had put out, I think two, I think i put out two episodes, neither of which had gotten any views. I mean, they were, you know, literally like, you know, 30 views, right? Or, or 50 views. And it was all my friends, right? You know? Um, and then I, but then I went to this National Sports Collectors Convention and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my iPhone I'm gonna take a microphone, I'm gonna take a tripod, and I am just gonna, I have no permission to do this, but I'm just gonna set up in the corner with all the booths behind me, and I'm going to record my my impressions of the National Sports Card Convention, and what I've seen, and, and what deals there are to be had, and what I heard, and what people are talking about, and what's hot. And I did a video, and I went back to my hotel room that night. This was the first day of the convention, and I uploaded the video to YouTube. And what I didn't realize was that there were thousands of people, probably more than that, who were sitting at home, wishing that they could have gone to Chicago to go to the National Sports Card collect- National Sports Collectors Convention. So what were they doing? They were searching online for content about it. And now I put out a YouTube video. And all of a sudden that starts being found by people in YouTube search. And all of a sudden within a day, that video had 2000 views. And I was like, whoa, You know what just happened? My first two videos got no views. My third video gets 2000 views. Well, it's all because I copped the news cycle. I copped the content cycle. I put the video out about the hot thing that people were searching for on the day they were searching for it. And then those people, some of them went back and watched my first two videos. And all of a sudden those two videos had like 500 views each. And then all of a sudden I had a few hundred subscribers um, and you know, and and then I was like, okay, you know, and then I think by the end of the national sports card convention, I had a few more, a few hundred more subscribers. And, and so now I'm coming back from it and I'm like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I can, I can keep doing videos and maybe I'll get to a thousand subscribers someday. And then I got to a thousand subscribers, you know, I think a, a month, uh, you know, a month or so after that, or two m- a couple months after that, and then I got a 5000 and then I got a 10000 and then I got a 20000 and 25000 and you know it just it it really started to kind of go from there um and I I rode the the popularity of the whole hobby but it's it's you know it's the persistence of doing the videos you know um having a good setup preparing for them doing them consistently it's all that type of thing
0: yeah I love that and I love how you bootstrapped and You started just, you just did it. Like you said, no one gave you permission. You didn't need permission to do it. You just grabbed your phone for your show. You grabbed your iPad. You just got rolling. So how long into the show before you brought in employees and had people help you with the shooting, with the editing, with with building the app?
1: I did it. uh, Yeah. So I did it entirely myself for the first several months. Um, and it became it became more and more work certainly, but I you know I I was I was doing I was doing what I could, but I knew that I was starting to ride a popularity curve, and I knew that I kind of wanted to ramp up. Um, I hired two part time employees back in December. Those were the first two folks I hired um, to kind of start helping. One was managing my social, one was managing my website. Then in, eventually in um, fe- in February, I hired a video editor. Uh, part-time, which was so that took a big burden off my plate having to edit all the videos myself. Um and he helped kind of upgrade my whole setup. And then in, in March I hired um, or I guess it was the beginning of April, I hired two full-time employees plus two more part-time employees. And I just hired another full-time employee and another part-time employee. And so it's it's now we have a team. I also started um building the data tool that you referenced called Market Movers. I started building that in kind of conceptualizing it in October, November. It took us about four months to really build it, three to four months to to build the first version of it. We launched it in February. And so that's been live now for four months and we've continued to build on it and, and iterate it. So I do have some developers working on that piece as well.
0: So in terms of what makes investing in cards possible today i feel like uh card grading has had a big impact on it do you feel like that was that sort of a catalyst for this um this boom
1: well grading helps ensure quality so um you don't you don't have to buy graded cards in order to invest but if you buy graded cards it helps ensure consistent quality with the cards that you're getting because they grade how sharp the card is um, but no, investing is possible because of the fact that it's a very dynamic market and people are buying and selling cards every day. And there are sites like eBay where it, it make it easy to buy and sell cards. And, and on eBay, it's a massive, massive category. It's, it's, you know, there's we're talking, you know, we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars of cards that are bought and sold on eBay every single day. Um, and then you've got you know sites like StockX, which was the big sneaker flipping site, and now they're big in sports cards, and you can buy stock you know sports cards through StockX, and you've got a whole bunch of others um, that are you know good places to go and buy cards, good marketplaces. So it's much more liquid. You can buy a card, and then you can sell out of it a month later, and and you know if you buy, it's all about picking the player that you think is going to get hot in the market for whatever reason. It could be because of their on on the field performance. Or it could be because of some other reason. You know, they're going to be featured in a documentary or something like that, and you feel like, you know, what if I buy this person's cards now? I think a couple months from now, those cards could go up in value. And here's my theory for why. And so you buy a bunch of their cards, and then you you hold them, and then you watch the how the prices change every day. And then when you feel good about where the prices are, you sell out of them. Kind of like, you know, kind of like the stock market. Or some people will buy and they'll hold for much longer. Some people will buy and they'll hold for years and years.
0: Yeah, and do you take an approach of short-term investing, long-term investing, a combination of both? Um I
1: like to do a combination of both. So the short term is, you know, k- kind of more so called flipping um which, you know, you know, I I'm, I'm going to buy a card and try to flip it a month later or two, you know, 2 months, 3 months that type of thing. There's plenty of opportunity to do that and when you're dealing, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, younger players and rookies and all that kind of stuff, that's an approach a lot of people take. Um, if I'm buying more Hall of Famers or if I'm buying, you know, kind of established, you know, great, great players, I'm probably buying them to hold them. And I'm probably gonna hold them for five or ten years, or maybe longer, and maybe hold them in my personal collection for for many, many years.
0: And in terms of the long term investment, this is this is like a boom time. It's sort of come back from it's really it's it's really just taken off lately. So How long do you think this will last? That the growth that we're seeing, especially as of late, do you think it'll be long term?
1: Um, I think we have. So first of all, on the high end of the sports card market, they've never cooled off. So if you go back and you look, if you go back 20 years ago, Jordan's rookie cards have always, always gone up. So I think on the high end of the market, these are collector pieces that that will always, hopefully retain and 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 you know go up in value. I think for the more common cards, you have to be a little bit worried about, you know, are is this just really hot right now and at some point it will cool off and become and they'll become worth less? And the answer to that is possibly. Um, but I think I, I don't think that's gonna happen for a few years at least. I think we've got a lot of I think increasing demand every single month, more and more demand, more people coming into sports cards. And, um, and I think that, you know, there's a limited, somewhat limited supply and I think you're going to see demand continue to outweigh supply for, for, I think probably at least the next three years. And, and we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see beyond that.
0: And speaking of Jordan and Jordan's rookie card, um, did I hear that you have sort of a great story from a recent purchase of, of that card?
1: Uh, yeah, well, uh, I at at the national last year, you know, it's amazing how hot the sports card market has been and how much cards have gone up in uh, in recent uh, recent months. It's, it's been great. So at the national last year that I described, I bought a Jordan rookie card that was I paid right around fifteen thousand dollars for it. It's one of the better condition graded Jordan rookies out there and i the card especially with the last dance documentary on espn and everything like that that card had gone up and up and it had gotten to the point where it was worth close to $30,000 and i i almost sold it um and 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 part of the reason why i almost sold it was because my wife uh, my wife when i bought the card for 15,000 she kind of looked at me a little bit sideways and so the fact that over the course of less than a year it had doubled to 30,000. I was like, maybe I should sell this. And I could just show, you know, hey, look, I had this doubling. Um, you know, that's, we made a good amount of money on this. So I had gotten a few offers at uh, at 28,000. Um, but the, um, the uh, I, I had it up for 30. And I told my wife, I'm like, look, I got two offers at 28. I declined both of them. I think I'm about to get 30 on it. And she actually said, don't sell it. And I was like, why not? She said, don't sell it. And she goes, you've proven your point. You've proven, you've proven that this card was a great investment. You've proven that the card has more than doubled in value. And she goes, do you think it will continue to go up from here? And I said, I, I absolutely do. Um, I said, I think this card will be a hundred thousand dollar plus card, if not a few hundred thousand dollar card real soon. And she, and she said, um, she said, okay, then don't sell it. So I pulled it off and then, sure enough, a couple of weeks later, uh, a card that was basically the same exact car that I had sold for around fifty thousand. So had I, you know, had I not, you know, had I, I would have been had I sold it at thirty, I would have been pretty upset a few weeks later when when it's you know sold for fifty. Um, and so um, it's uh, yeah. So I mean, that's how dynamic the market's been and how things have been going up and and uh, why I continue to be bullish on it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great example, just the potential in sports card investing. Now, someone who's just started out, say they're considering entrepreneurship, they're considering sports card investing, what would be some tips? How would you advise that they start?
1: Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, educate yourself. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I will say one downside of, you know, people flooding into the hobby. And, you know, a lot of people listening to Gary Vee and that type of thing is that sometimes people say, oh, it's going to be really easy for me to make a quick buck here. And I'm just going to go in and buy this and do this and sell this. But you have to have, you know, nothing in life comes that easy. If it does, it's fleeting. And if it does, you know, if, if some people are able to make a quick buck like that, then everybody else starts flooding in and trying to make a quick buck and then it dissipates and, and now all of a sudden people are stuck and and they're not you know they maybe have lost money um, and we've seen that as sports card hobby uh, time and time again and so it's it it is while it's alluring that you can come in and make the type of money which you can you can absolutely do but it's going to take some research and it's going to take some commitment and it's going to just be like anything else in life that you need to learn what you're doing. You need to educate yourself. You need to you need to you know you need to have a commitment to learning and 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 mastering the craft. And you're going to make some mistakes at first. And you're going to buy some cards where you know you you thought you were buying one thing and you actually bought another thing. Or oh, I, I thought this was a good price, but I it actually wasn't a good price. I didn't realize that. And um, so you you'll learn that kind of stuff. So I mean, I think educating yourself, obviously, um, you know, that's what we aim to do at Sports Card Investor through our YouTube videos, through our website, where we're publishing a few new articles a week, and then through our membership program, which is where people can sign up and pay a monthly fee uh, in order to get premium content, access to our data tool, all that type of thing. Um, that's that's what we aim to do. We aim to educate new folks coming into the sports card investing market and showing them how they can profit from the hobby that they love.
0: Yeah, and the Market Movers tool tool is, immensely valuable for that. I mean it just how it breaks down all the historical trends and everything with regards to to sales for all these these cards. How when you were building the product, how did you determine pricing? Where did you decide where did you decide to set it at the monthly rate and then how did you decide to get there?
1: That's a great question and we debated on pricing for a long time. Ultimately, I priced it at $49 a month and then there's a discount if you if you pay annually. And then we also give like 20% off your first payment if you use it, if you use um, uh, a coupon code. In fact, we have a coupon code, um, Facebook right now. Uh, Facebook, you can put that in, you get 20% off your first payment, whether it's monthly or annual. So we're somewhere in that kind of uh, 35 to $49 range, depending if you're paying monthly or annual and depending if you're using the coupon. Um, and how we came to that was basically so that, first of all, that tool, obviously that's on the, you know, for someone who's just brand new, getting into sports card investing and they want to put 50 bucks into it or hundred bucks into it to buy a card or two and see what they do. That tool might be a little overkill, you know, because you're, you're probably not going to want to spend $50 a month on a tool. Um, and then, um, you know, and then only have $50 to spend on sports cards. Uh, however, once you get going with it and you say, wow, I could make hundreds or even thousands of dollars a month by buying and selling sports cards. Now, if our tool can make you a 10% or 20% better investor by giving you better access to data, by showing you undervalued listings on eBay, and by doing that type of thing now, it can quickly pay for itself. So I felt like k- kind of in that 35 to $49 range per month was about right for you know, somebody who might be you know, spending hundreds of dollars a month, uh, you know, on sports cards and then trying to make profit on those cards that felt about right to me. And I felt like I could, I feel like people could make their money back with one particularly good deal that they otherwise wouldn't have found or wouldn't have quite known what to price something at. And that's what a lot of my members tell me. A lot of my members say, look, I made, I made that feedback a hundred times over, uh, through, you know, the profits that I made from buying and selling cards using the tool. Mm
0: Mm-hmm and with every any sort of software or subscription there's always support what kind of support do you find that you have to do for market movers
1: yeah so i've got one and a half full time employees or you know one full time employee plus one part time employee who now concentrate just solely on that um there is support people will email in with questions and how do i do this how do i do that why can't i get this card to come up or this player to come up and and we we're constantly also building the database of cards. You know right now it tracks about six thousand of the most popular sports cards, um, which when we launched in February, it was only tracking about uh, five or six hundred um, of the most popular sports cards. And we've scaled it all the way up to six thousand over the course of the last four months. Um, and of course, we'd like to scale it to sixty thousand, right? So you can you know any any card you could possibly be investing in, we're gonna have inside the system. Um, so, um, it takes, yeah, it takes, it takes resources, it takes people, it takes, you know, but it obviously as the subscribers have grown, it's afforded us the opportunity to reinvest in, in hiring people and, and doing that type of thing.
0: And in terms of your personal collection, in terms of the investments and things you've made, are there any cards that really stand out as maybe your favorites?
1: Well, so obviously, there's a difference between, um, you know, what you might be collecting as a collector and then what you're actually investing in. Right. So as a collector, I went to the University of Florida. I like collecting Florida Gator cards. Um, I own, for example, a whole bunch of Tim Tebow cards um, and that that but those aren't really those aren't investments. That's just I've enjoyed collecting those. They're they're fun to collect Um, from an investing standpoint. Um, I'm, I'm mainly, mainly investing in basketball, but I do have a fair amount of baseball and a little bit of football as well. And there, by the way, there's also opportunities in hockey and soccer. I just haven't gotten as into it myself, even though I have covered it on the show. Um, but, um, in terms of basketball, I mean, you know, I, I think a real safe investment right now is LeBron. And so I own several LeBron rookie cards, um, of different types and different grades, And, you know, that's a safe one. That's one that I like a lot. Um, You know, obviously, I've got the Jordan card. Um, In terms of, you know, a little more recent players, um, you know, Giannis is a great one. Luca, you know, these are all, Trey Young is one that I own a ton of because he's here in Atlanta and and I enjoy watching him play. And I also think he's a good investment. So, you know, these are all all cards that I've been um, buying.
0: And being that you're a fan of football, you're a fan of baseball and basketball, why Why would you say you lean more towards basketball instead of, say, football?
1: Yeah, um, so football is tougher from an investment standpoint. First of all, the only position that people really care about is quarterback, um, you know, because, yeah, running backs and wide receivers, people will chase their cards a little bit, but their careers are a lot shorter, especially running backs, um, and they just aren't You know they just aren't regarded as as well the quarterback is seen as kind of the field general and nobody buys defensive players uh and so the challenge is that your quarterback i mean now you know you're only talking there might only be 15 or 20 quarterbacks currently playing in the nfl that anyone really cares to buy their cards so now you've got an entire sport with like 15 or 20 cards that people are really chasing are 15 or 20 players, current day players, that people are really chasing. So from that perspective, football's not, you know, not as great. Um, basketball, there's a lot more opportunity with players at different positions. All, you know, any 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 position on the court could be could be worthwhile to invest in. Um, it's much more of an international game. It's growing quick. It's growing faster. There's less injury risk, which is a problem in football. And so, you know, those are all things that I like about basketball. Um, You know, baseball has obviously been kind of the traditional one, but it's not, doesn't resonate as well with younger people, millennials, that type of thing. Um, It's also not quite as international as basketball is. Um, So, you know, I think baseball is okay, but at least baseball has a low injury risk. Um, And um, so, you know, baseball is okay as well. Um, but, I, you know, for the most part, I think basketball is the one that I think is your 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 best of the investments.
0: Yeah, that all makes sense. So thank you so much for doing this. This has been a great chat. Um, where should we send people if they want to learn more about you and more about sports card investing?
1: Yeah, uh, sportscardinvestor.com uh, is a great place to go. And from there, you can find our YouTube series uh, called Sports Card Investor. And of course, we're on Twitter and Instagram. We're in all these places under SportsCard Investor. But if you go to our website, SportsCardInvestor.com, it links to all of those areas.
0: So yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for doing this. And I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day. Appreciate
1: it, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: See you. Take care. I want to thank Jeff for chatting today. Be sure to check out SportsCard Investor on YouTube and take a look at his phenomenal market movers tool at SportsCardInvestor.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co That's B-Y-L-T dot C-O to get started. Built. your website, built for you, simply. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. You'll find all the links for this episode at built.co 006. That's B-Y-L-T 006. Well, that'll do it for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Saris, and this has been Started Now, and I'll see you next time.